Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Well, good morning, brave people. Actually, you're not really brave. You're just normal. And every time it snows, what we remember is how many people moved here from California and Texas. That's what's really going on. No, don't clap for them. They're not here. Uh, Anyway, good morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 11. If you don't, there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you or near you. Uh, We're back to the Gospel of Luke. If you were with us the last several weeks, we talked about what is the capital C Church. And then last week we um, celebrated uh, child dedications and baptisms together on just a beautiful, beautiful Sunday morning service. And then we'll be back in Luke here for a few weeks. And then uh, starting December 3rd, which if you can believe is just a few weeks away, uh, we will spend our time talking about Advent Uh, the coming of Jesus that we anticipate each and every year. But for this morning, Luke chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, But inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be gracious to the poor and everything else will be clean for you. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you build their tombs. 
Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, wanting to catch him in something he might say. Now, I don't know what you picture when you read the text, when you read the Gospels, especially stories about Jesus, but can I just be honest? I think we give Jesus a pass all the time. Like, he's always just great, and everyone else is just terrible. But what I find interesting about this passage is one of the things nearly every commentator and scholar says about this is that according to the customs of the day, Jesus was actually a terribly rude dinner guest. He wasn't polite at all. It reminded me of years ago, I was traveling abroad with a group of people, and on this particular trip, it was decided that we were going to stay with host families. And so we were all getting ready to go to our separate homes, and our group leader said, okay, please remember to be gracious guests because we have really gracious hosts. And also, please remember... In this culture, it is incredibly rude not to eat something given you at every meal they feed you. And at that point, I was like, I'll be fine. It'll be great. So we go. I meet the host family. They welcome me. They bring me to their home. They introduce me to their kids. We're kind of communicating through the language barrier. And then they showed me to the room where I was going to be staying. And they said, dinner will be ready in about 20 minutes. And so they left me alone. I kind of settled in. And then I walked out of the room, and the aroma that was wafting through the apartment, it was like being greeted by a big hug of a loved one. Garlic, herbs, lemon, onion, and I'm like, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to eat whatever they put in front of me. So we sit down at the table, they pray, and then the father and mother get up and they walk into the kitchen. And I hear some dishes clanging and like my mouth is watering because of the aroma. And then the father carries out this really large bowl of peas. Now there are two vegetables that I hate intensely and peas are one of them. And I'm hearing the echo. Just remember, it's rude in this culture not to eat what they put in front of you. So I thought, I'll just take a small like spoonful and kind of put it on my plate and then pass the piece and right as I'm thinking that I see the mother come out with two more large bowls of peas and the father puts the large bowl in front of me and the mother puts the large bowl in front of the kids and I'm stuck and then they go in and they get their large bowls and everyone begins eating you know that thing you do when you have to eat disgusting food where you just put it in your mouth and then you just wash it down with water and you swallow it whole? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Your nostrils are flaring. You're not fooling anyone because you have putrescence in your mouth. That's how I got through that bowl of peas. And I t drank, I'm not kidding, like three or four glasses of water. They were like, this guy must be thirsty. But this is what you do, right? I mean, if you go to someone's house, you're just polite. You kind of adapt to whatever culture and customs you're in. But not Jesus. 
You see, the Pharisee invites Jesus into his home. And Jesus was a well-known teacher, so it's not unusual that he would have been invited into a home. He may have even been invited in because a lot of times religious types like that would invite in rabbis or teachers so that they could have a discussion or a debate or listen to a teaching. And Jesus walks in to this home and skips washing his hands and plops down at the table. That's rude. Because in that culture, someone had taken time to prepare the water the right way because you couldn't just wash with any water. It had to be prepared according to some specific guidelines. And not only that, but by not washing, Jesus is upsetting not just the cultural norms of his day, but the religious expectations. In Exodus chapter 30, there's a story where Moses, who was leading the people of Israel, is... uh, ordains and anoints Aaron, his brother, and Aaron's sons as priests over Israel. And one of the things that happens first is we learn that the priests are supposed to go into the temple and wash with water a ritual washing before performing any of their work. Now, I don't know what you picture when you think about the temple and sacrifices, but one of the things that's often lost when people talk about it is the temple was a kind of restaurant. You would bring animals there, they would butcher the animal, they would burn the animal or cook it, and then you would get some of it and the priest would get some of it, and there was a meal. This was one of the symbols of sacrifice. You're having a meal alongside God. And because it's a meal alongside God, the idea was if you're a priest, you need to ritually wash to show your purity. Because it was essential that you be pure so that you might have connection with God. Well, for the very religious and the very devout, they said, I think it's a great idea that the priests wash before they uh, perform their work and before they eat. In fact, I think it would be great if all of us did that. Because after all, no matter where we are when we eat our meals, we are always, in a sense, eating before and eating with God, the one who's given us the food on our table. And so it became a part of their religious tradition to wash their hands. And Jesus doesn't care. He goes in, he reclines at the table. And so you can understand, if you have a very religious person who sees this, he's a little surprised. I mean, Jesus is one of his own. Many believe that Jesus was a Pharisee, that he grew up within that sect of Judaism. A sect of Judaism, by the way, that was very well respected. But the guest, unlike Jesus, is actually polite. Because while he's surprised, he doesn't say anything, he doesn't point out Jesus. And I don't know what he did. Maybe he like raised his eyebrows in surprise when Jesus took that first bite of bread. But whatever it was, Jesus picks up on it. And Jesus goes from rude to almost belligerent. Now keep in mind, no one who's sitting at that table, at that moment, it doesn't seem like any of them had done anything wrong. They're just under, the host is understandably surprised that Jesus didn't wash. You begin to wonder, like, was Jesus baiting this guy into an argument? Because Jesus just tees off on everyone sitting at the table. And he doesn't, like, pull any punches. The first thing he does, he says, now then, you Pharisees, 
You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Like, this is not a very wonderful dinner conversation. At this point, you're like, we'd rather talk about like politics. Like This is not going anywhere. Now, it's interesting that Jesus starts with this one. He uses the image of cleaning the inside and outside of the cup or the dish and then relates it to the inside and the outside of us as human beings. This is actually a reference to one of the more popular debates in Jesus' day. There were two primary influential rabbis in Jesus' day. One was named Hillel, one was named Shammai. And they had houses that they called Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai. Shammai taught, ah, just clean the outside of the dish ritually, don't worry about the inside. And Hillel argued, no, clean all of it. What good is it to clean the outside if the inside is still unclean? So Jesus references this and says, you want to wash your hands? Fantastic. Have you taken a look inside? Because it's full of greed and wickedness. And Jesus, by the way, is just getting started. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. Now Jesus is just mocking them. Because these garden herbs he's talking about were usually dried. And the word there for give a tenth is like an exacting measure. So the picture is these really religious people with tweezers counting out all the different pieces of the herbs. And he's like, yeah, you took so much time to do that that you forgot about justice. And you forgot about the love of God. Don't forget about justice. Don't forget about the love of God. Do all of it. Just don't ignore the things that stir God's heart. And then he says, Woe to you because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. They loved getting patted on the back. They loved when they would sit. Remember like in some churches where they had the pulpit chairs? Any of you ever see that? Where there would be some people sitting behind the preacher? The first church where I worked, I had to do that. And one day, I'm not kidding, I started falling asleep. People figured out really quick, he should not be up there. <laughs> you love it. You love it, Jesus. Says, but here's the thing. You know what you are? You're like death. Contaminating people when they come into contact with you. Now, at this point, civility comes back to the table. It's found in the mouth of a lawyer or the expert in the law. And he actually even addresses Jesus in a respectful way. Teacher, he says. Teacher, don't you realize, like, I know you're talking to them, but you're also talking to us, which means we're all insulted here? And the language, you can see it in the original language. He's very calm. He's very cool. He's very collected. He's very kind. He's very polite. And Jesus just is not interested in returning that. Like he's just getting going, and this is where it gets good. He says, oh, good, I'm glad you piped up, you experts in the law. Woe to you, because you load down people with burdens that you won't help them carry. Woe to you, because you keep at all of these human-made rules and laws and traditions, and you load people up with them, and you expect them to do it all, and you don't do anything. You watch them collapse under the burden of poor religion that you have placed on them. And then he basically calls them prophet killers. Woe to you, 
because you built tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. Now this is a tricky part of the whole, uh, I would say, tirade maybe that Jesus is on. But this is what he's saying. Woe to you because you look back at the wrong that your ancestors did and you go, we're not like them. In fact, we'll build tombs for the prophets to show that we honor all those who speak for God. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? You're exactly like them. By the way, there's some things about religion that just like don't ever age out, do they? When was the last time you heard a religious person looking backward at the religious world they grew up in going, we're, we're nothing like them. We're, we're, I'm so glad we've grown past that. Because one feature of people that look back who haven't healed from whatever happened there is they look back with disdain, often doing so from a place of arrogance, believing we're beyond all that. Jesus says, woe to you. And then the last thing he says is this. Woe to you experts in the law because you've taken away the key to knowledge that you yourselves have not entered and you've hindered those who are entering. Woe to you for obscuring the face of God underneath all of your legalism. Teaching people this is what's important to know about. You've taught them the wrong thing, which means you've actually hidden everything that people should know. Woe to you. And then they say, man, Jesus, thank you so much. That was a great teaching. We'll have to think about that. No, they oppose him fiercely. And this is where the story ends. Now, I don't know how you picture yourself in these stories. But often when I hear like, people talk about these stories, we look at like, Jesus just lambasting these people. And I've not only heard it as an excuse for people doing the same thing to others who seem to be like the Pharisees and the lawyers, but actually like, as an example. Like, yeah, we need to get mad. Yeah, we need to call them names. It's fine. Gets their attention. Tells us what we're thinking. It's like we picture ourselves as those who also didn't wash our hands and we're like kind of reclining next to Jesus and every time he says something, we're making sure to make eye contact with all of those legalists around the table and we're like, yeah, huh, yeah, oh, facial, yeah. And we're like fist bumping Jesus. And every time he says something, we're getting a little bit more fired up. We're just pouring fuel on the fire of his passion. And then he starts dropping, whoa. And we're like, oh, yeah. By the way, you know what the word woe is in Greek? Ooh, I. <laughs> Does that not sound like a fierce word? You're like, ooh, I. Like just, it just feels like a karate chop word. And it's great because honestly, are there any people in this world that deserve to get an earful like this other than the self-righteous? I mean, my goodness, they're so annoying. Am I right? Always judging, always assuming that their crap doesn't stink, always telling you everything that's wrong with you, always in this place of like, you're like, oh, it must be so hard to be perfect. Like that popular line, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Like, I mean, come on. Is there, is it, isn't it just a little satisfying and gratifying to watch Jesus do this? But here's the trouble. As gratifying as it might be, Jesus may not actually be looking to kick the crap out of anybody. 
Because that word uai, woe, it's actually an interjection of grief. According to the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, woe or uai is an expression of sympathetic sorrow, not condemnation. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that Luke, anytime he quotes the Hebrew Scriptures, is actually quoting the Septuagint because Luke was Greek. So in the Bible that Luke read, that word, uai, woe, is used 69 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, and it's used to give this expression to this word that means to howl, like howling in grief. I don't know if you've ever heard someone with a deep ache howl at the death of a loved one or at circumstances. But, but that's the connotation of this word. Jesus is howling in grief while sitting at that table. Which, of course, you might be like, well, why, why would Jesus be sad? Well, maybe Jesus is sad because the real tragedy of self-righteous types the real tragedy of all those law-abiding religious citizens is that because they think that nothing is wrong with them, they're actually unable to receive or unwilling to receive the thing that God most wants to give them, that my God most wants to give all of us, which is love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. I mean, if you've earned God's favor, you don't need love, which is free. You've done something to get it. And if you've done something to get it, that's not love. If you've done nothing wrong, then you don't need grace. You don't need forgiveness. You can just enjoy how great you are. Maybe that's what breaks Jesus' heart. It's not, whoa, it's, whoa, what are you doing? You work so hard to give a tenth of even herbs do you realize what you've overlooked do you realize that in all of what you think is goodness you're actually just carrying death around inside of you and contaminating everyone else wake up you almost hear this longing in the heart of Jesus when you understand that that word woe and I believe we've read our own anger and angst into it is actually an expression of sympathetic sorrow and not condemnation. It's an interjection of grief because Jesus is sitting at a table with people realizing it's filled with those who actually are unable to receive the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. Not too long ago, I met with a couple who was telling me about their son. And their son is an addict and is in the throes of addiction. And through tears, they're sharing with me about all of the things they have tried to do, of how they've left their house open for him, how they've invited him back, how they've walked with him while he's attempted to go to rehab and walked with him when he fell back into addiction. It was the most heart-wrenching story. And then at one point, the mother looked at me with tears in her eyes and she said the most heartbreaking piece of all of this is our son just won't receive what we so badly want to give him. Oh, 
those words. And I wonder, like, is that what breaks Jesus' heart? You think you're so good, but you don't have to be. But because you think that you can't receive what God longs to give you. You see, what's interesting is maybe this is why self-righteous types love to throw rocks and are so intolerant of other people. Because you can't give something you don't possess. You can't offer something to someone that you haven't received for yourself. Maybe this is why self-righteous people love to throw rocks because they have that thing in their hand and it's way easier to look out and find fault in everybody else versus actually doing the hard work of looking at your own stuff within. And all they're consumed about is not what brokenness might need healing, but who their next target is and to be sure that they can hit them with it. And by the way, it works the other way too. Because I've never met anybody who is honest, who is introspective, who's quick to admit their mistakes, who is honest about their brokenness that needs healing. I've actually never seen people like that even pick up a rock due to lack of interest in throwing it. Because what they're busy doing is enjoying the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the healing that's been theirs all along. And they're actually not yelling at the self-righteous types. Instead, with Jesus, there's an ache that they have. They're not raging. They're aching because what they want, just like Jesus, is for redemption and renewal and reconciliation to be for all people. They want others to receive what they've been given. This is what stirs their heart. That everyone would say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner, knowing we will only be met with kindness and love and graced by the power of forgiveness. Barbara Brown Taylor, in talking about this passage in Luke, says these words. Jesus has a relatively easy time with sinners. By the way, just stop right there. If you're here and someone's been like, you sinner, you heretic, how could you? Wonderful. Jesus has an easy time with you. <laughs> Jesus has a relatively easy time with sinners. Their hearts are already broken, so it's not hard for him to get inside. But the righteous are like vaults. They're so full of their precious values and so defended against those who do not share them that even the dynamite of the gospel has little effect on them. Woe to you Pharisees, Jesus wails. For you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. He, he can't seem to make his point often enough. Self-righteousness kills not only those who are bludgeoned by it, but those who wield it as well. Jesus does not preach humility because modesty is becoming. He preaches it because it's the only cure for the deadly pride and arrogance that make us want to kill each other. Whether the murder is as subtle as purging someone from our circle of friends or as bloody as nailing someone to a tree. You see, the longing of Jesus is that people would just know what it feels like when a father runs down the road while we're still a long way off and says, I'm so happy you're home. But if you never turn around toward home, the heartbreak is and the tragedy is you never actually get that experience. And so Jesus, 
Maybe he's rude because he's heartbroken. Maybe he can't see the water because the tears are in his own eyes. Or maybe, maybe Luke, knowing the audience that were the original readers of his gospel, maybe he was doing something subversive. Maybe he was writing in such a way where they would have been surprised reading about this story and thought to themselves, well, my goodness, Jesus is being a little bit rude. And maybe just with that little kind of speed bump at the beginning, those reading might hesitate to place themselves right next to Jesus and be his hype man. Maybe they would have been with the people who did it right, you know, the ones who washed their hands, the ones who respected customs, the ones who were gracious guests. And maybe Luke does that so that all of us, rather than cheering Jesus on, will look at his loving gaze and hear his heartbreak and his invitation to all of us. Because if you're sitting here this morning and all you're doing is thinking about all those self-righteous people who should have braved the weather and gotten here so they could hear this sermon, I have bad news for you. You're one of the guests at the table. Because there's something about all of us that we seem to have a proclivity toward self-righteousness. And the stronger that denial is right now welling up within you, probably the better indicator that it can be true of you and me and all of us. And the invitation of Jesus is simply to hear the heartbreak. It is simply to be those who say, yeah, there's things that I've done and there's things I've left undone that are hurtful. There's things that I've said and there's things that I've not said which have wounded people. To be those who look within, to be those who turn toward the almighty loving God, bent and broken and bruised. And recognize that it's when we do that, then we will discover what God has longed to give us all along. Let's pray together. God, we thank you um, that you are a God who's interested in re reconciliation and restoration and renewal in rebuilding the ancient ruins, the places long left destroyed, the one who brings beauty from ashes. I ask that you would free us, that you would liberate us from those voices within that tell us we need to hide, that we need to cover up, that we need to look the part, because each time we trust that, we walk away from the beauty and the grace that you wish to give each of us. Would you allow us to see the face of Jesus who's expressing and howling in grief and sympathetic sorrow over the way we keep ourselves from you. We pray these strong things together this morning in the strong name of Jesus and all the people of God said, amen. The Franciscan friar Richard Rohrer once observed how in many congregations and in many denominations, both Protestant and Catholic, we've taken the Eucharist and we've made it into a worthiness contest of who's allowed to come up and participate in this. And in doing so, we've actually kept people away from the body and the blood of Jesus. And he says, 
Eucharist isn't a worthiness contest. God doesn't love you because you are good. God loves you because God is good, which means everyone is invited to come and to receive and to be reminded of the grace and the love and the mercy and forgiveness that has been yours all along. And so we do invite all of you. It's not our table. It's Jesus' table. The one who would sit with the rankest of sinners and the most righteous of the religious, offering all of them the same thing, his body and his blood. And we do this because, according to the Gospel of Matthew, it says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we invite you, as you're ready, to come forward. We have two stations here up front and two on the sides. You can come down the side aisle, or the center aisle or the side aisles, and return to your seat up at the diagonal aisle. You may come when you're ready. Thanks for engaging our teaching with us as we continue to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in the world. At DCC, we believe that taking care of our emotional and mental health is just as important as taking care of our physical bodies. If you're experiencing stress, anxiety, depression, or another mental health concern, please don't feel you need to carry that alone. Let someone know. A friend, family member, one of DCC's pastors, or your counselor. We have various resources on our website, and you can always get in touch with us at info at denverchurch.org. To stay connected with all that is happening in the life of our community, we encourage you to sign up for our weekly email or download our DCC app. Again, thank you for joining us on our podcast today. It is always great to be together.